my paper is indeed on the role of faith in philosophy, or specifically in Husserl's philosophy. And I will try to show this role of faith uh, on the basis of Husserl's goal of the constitution of the one world for all, and specifically the assumed unity of such a world. I don't think it's exclusive to that no, problem of the unity of that world, but that's the uh, issue I'll be dealing with. So my claim will be that Husserl can phenomenologically account for the teleology that suggests such a world, but not for the actual possibility of this world, the telos itself. And I think Husserl ends up bridging this gap between what he can and cannot justify through an act of faith. And I want to emphasize that this is about a philosophical move that he makes, not about his personal religious convictions or anything like that. They might, might be related, but I'm leaving that out of the picture. Uh, also because Husserl himself explicitly discusses this kind of faith uh, in a more or less philosophical register in some of his later writings. So I'll first go into the nature of the gap between what Husserl can and cannot justify uh, as a tension between, the, let's say, the overall scope of Husserl's philosophical project and the boundaries set by his phenomenological method. I will then specifically look into what this entails for his teleology and his telos to then show the systematic role that faith has in Husserl's philosophy. Now, before going further, I want to uh, emphasize that this isn't, this isn't necessarily a critique of Husserl. It's more of an analysis that might be the possible foundation of a critique, but like whether his use of faith is like illegitimate or not, that's no, something that I'm also going to leave out of the question. So, to highlight the tension between the scope of Husserl's philosophy and the boundaries of his phenomenology, uh, it's useful to very briefly and in a, a very, very general sense uh, characterize both independently from each other. It might be a bit like no, counterintuitive to uh, talk of Husserl's philosophy aside from his phenomenology, but I think that will show the tension between what he's trying to do and what he can and cannot do. So looking at Husserl's work and his own characterization of it, it's clear that to a large extent it is a sort of rationalist in the somewhat general enlightenment sense of the term. And I think it would even be fair to call Husserl an exemplary case of that kind of philosophy, even though it's historically a bit out of place, of course. Although he's often critical of rationalism, he's always uh, you know, concerned with like, the one-sidedness of modern rationalism, never with rationalism as such. And if we look at the core components of his philosophy, we find the typical elements we find in basically most enlightenment philosophy. But there's an emphasis on reason to deal with issues of both a theoretical and practical nature, uh, the latter which Husserl at times calls the ethico-religious issues. Uh, reason is basically the privileged way of coming to know and acting upon the world. And we might not figure out everything straight away, uh, but we can build on previous results and in doing so approximate the one and only truth. And this truth is a regulative idea guiding our knowledge and actions teleologically in a process of continually increasing rationality. And Husserl famously sees this teleology at work in history. Now, this isn't like sort of a Hegelian automatic process. It's uh, by no means sort of uh, like a guaranteed teleology in existence. But once we've attained the standpoint of reason, we can take it upon ourselves as a task, the infinite task just referred to. Now, what is the outcome of this task, the goal, the telos? Well, I think there's actually several answers to this question in Husserl, sort of related to each other. But what it definitely involves is a type of universalism again, in both theoretical and practical matters. So precisely insofar as this task is one of reason, it's one that any rational being can take upon uh, him or herself. So it's a universal task leading to universal results. 
And I think it's important to stress that it's not just about scientific progress in the sense of a further expansion and integration of knowledge. This teleology also uh, and importantly concerns moral and societal issues. Husserl wants to basically overcome an empirically fragmented mankind through the universality of reason. So reason leads to unity. As we progress through history, as we take this task upon ourselves, we move towards one and the same rational world for all. Now that's a very brief and very general characterization of Husserl's philosophy, and I think it's clear that it's by no means particular to him. Of course, what sets him apart is the means by which he wants to carry out this project, namely his phenomenology, about which I will be even briefer. And again, we see similarities with Enlightenment philosophy trying to outline the boundaries of knowledge and experience in order not to overstep these boundaries into the realm of speculation. And particular to phenomenology, of course, is that it bases itself on experience, on what is given in intuition, and that it allows for no justification that cannot be found in or be led back to what is given in intuition. That is the strict boundary of what Husserlian phenomenology will and will not allow. So any crossing of this boundary might be allowable in certain cases, <coughs> it's rather useful in everyday life, and it might even be rational in certain cases, but it would no longer be phenomenology in the strict sense of the word. It would no longer be the rigorous approach that Husserl wants to uphold. So on the one hand, we see that Husserl's philosophy is incredibly ambitious in its scope. It wants to de deal with any and all issues in a rational manner. But on the other hand, his phenomenology is also incredibly ambitious, but precisely in upholding the strictest of boundaries. And I said, I think there's at least one case where these ambitions clash, namely the tension between Husserl's philosophical aims and his phenomenology come to the fore when Husserl tries to conceive of or justify the possibility of the constitution of the one world for all. Specifically, we can see the problem when we look at how Husserl can justify his teleology and how he can justify the constitution of the one world as his telos. Now, it's important to keep in mind what Husserl is talking about when speaking of this teleology in history. Now, much of Husserl's work is dedicated to going back from idealized conceptions of the world, constructs, back to the life world as the experiential foundation of these idealizations. And this typically phenomenological move traces our conception of the world back to our concrete experience of the world. In Husserl's, <coughs> sorry, in Husserl's overall project, however, this is just one step. The life world is not the conclusion of his work, but the proper starting point. Leaving aside the more phenomenological and also very relevant issue of the constitution of the life world itself, um, Husserl's rationalist project for non-phenomenological reasons uh, also you know, gives reasons why the life world is the beginning and not the end of his philosophy. The life world as we live in it is a historically and culturally relative world. Different peoples live in different life worlds. And of course this relativism doesn't sit well with Husserl's ideals, especially his ideal of universalism. So we need to move from the plurality of particular life worlds to something like a universal world through the process of rationalization. Now, this is precisely the teleology that Husserl speaks of you know, in the crisis writings, the Vienna lecture in particular, uh, where he also gives a very typical account of how this works. People live in their particular relative life worlds. They're unaware of this particularity and of its relativity. For them, it's just the world. But through the encounters with others and their worlds, they become aware that their life world doesn't provide the one and only truth, the absolute truth, that it is just one amongst many. So to counter this relativism and skepticism, basically philosophy for Husserl was established in the positing of the idea of the one true world 
of which these particular worlds were precisely particular relative versions. So this would be a world common to all, whether existing or to be achieved, as the goal of theoretical and practical endeavors. Again, such a story is by no means unique to Husserl, but what is of interest here is how Husserl can justify this teleology from a phenomenological point of view. Now, much more can be said about this, but I will focus on a possible justification uh, based on the structure of experience, which Husserl actually, at least as far as I'm aware of, doesn't explicitly appeal to, but which I think is clearly at work in his accounts of this teleology. And then other uh, people have made the connection. So, for Husserl, the world is the horizon of our experience. It is the background which allows us to make sense of our various experiences as a coherent whole. And here it's useful to distinguish between the internal and the external horizons of objects of experience. Uh, this distinction allows us to see why Husserl can phenomenologically account for the ever ongoing teleological process of universalization, but not for the idea that this, is ne that this necessarily culminates in the same world for all that would engage in this teleology. So in the case of the internal horizon of an object of uh, perception, we have, you know, of course, various perspectives on the object, which are united by this internal horizon as precisely being perspectives on one and the same object. And of course, our perception can be fleshed out and corrected by additional perspectives, uh, our own and that of others, to progressively and indeed teleologically approximate something like the object itself. Uh, even though we never reach this object in itself, it functions as a regulative idea guiding our perception, and the more successful we can incorporate further perceptions, the more safely we can assume that our perception provides an approximation of the actual object itself. Of course, much more can also be said about you know, this object and its perhaps difficult status in phenomenology. I think that the previous two talks also sort of showed that a little bit. But I think at the very least, this object-guided element entails that we cannot constitute the object in any way whatsoever, but only in its own terms. It guarantees the possibility of a harmonious synthesis of experience, both on an individual, but also on an intersubjective level. Now, the case is different for the external horizon of an object. Um, yeah, so the external horizon allow also allows for the extension of experience indefinitely, but in this case, it's not the synthesis of an object, but it's sort of the synthesis between objects, from object to object, region to region, world to world. So different objects or situations, isolated as they may seem at times, are taken into a larger context that connects them. So we experience everything as fundamentally belonging to a single world. So as mentioned, different life worlds, when coming into contact with each other, do not remain separate. As Husserl says, and I quote from the crisis, relatively meant worlds in the course of correction are transformed into mere appearances of the world, the life world for all. This is the world, another world would have no meaning at all for us. And in the Cartesian meditations, we find similar talk of the inherent universal and unitary sense of the world. Moreover, there he explicitly and importantly adds that it is this world, this unitary world, that involves, and I quote, the problems of fate, of the possibility of a genuine human life, therefore the problem of the meaning of history and all the further and still higher problems. We can say that they are the ethico-religious problems. In other words, what Husserl is referring to here is precisely the world as it has a place in his teleology, wanting to deal with both theoretical and practical issues. Now the question is, is there something like an object of any kind 
corresponding to this world to guide our approximation of it? And the answer I claim is no, and so does Husserl. He is very much aware of the fact that the world is, uh, you know, precisely as the horizon of our experience, is not an object of our experience. Yet at times he does treat the world in the sense of horizon as an object, as something having a unified sense. In fact, I think Husserl needs to treat the world in this way, otherwise his teleology has no sense, or at least not the sense he wants it to have as ending in this one world for all. So if there's nothing like an object to guarantee the actual unity of his telos, there's nothing guaranteeing that the process of rationalization and universalization will end up in the same world for all peoples who engage in this teleology. Of course, it's likely that they will through contact with each other through a sort of Gadamerian fusion of horizons, but in principle, this does not have to be the case. And in the Cartesian meditations, Husserl calls it a pure absurdity uh, that there's different communities of, of, well, of monads uh, constituting different worlds, but I see no good reason why we cannot imagine completely separated peoples uh, engaged in similar teleologies, equally rational, that do not converge on the same world, but that actually diverge onto different worlds. Now, we are accustomed to the idea that universality and rationality entail unity. But what is there to guarantee any real unity in this case? The only things that could do that are either a concrete world that we'd be moving towards, or a concrete like, picture of the world or whatever, or some measure inherent in this teleology that would specify its direction, specify the determination of this world. Now, insofar as such a measure exists, it's an entirely formal idea and thus cannot help us solve this problem. It is, and I quote Husserl again, an infinitely distant and unattainable idea of which only the form as an absolute norm for the construction of all starting points is given. And indeed in the crisis or anywhere else, we find no description of what the world corresponding to this ideal would look like. And that is because that would be impossible. It is a formal notion. Now, unlike the teleology of the internal horizon involved in perception, where we can safely assume the existence of an object of some kind that provides the measure for and unity to our experience, the one world for all, Husserl's telos, lacks such a measure. So he can justify his teleology, the process of universalization through his account of experience as involving a horizon and you know, being indefinitely extendable, able to incorporate all new experiences. But there's no experiential basis for his telos as a particular way in which this has to happen. Now, if the unity the telos is to provide is not justified, neither is the move from the plurality of particular life worlds to a single world with a universal sense. So the unity of this world is more of a deeply entrenched assumption than something that is properly justified. And it makes sense that he cannot justify it experientially, or that is phenomenologically, because it is a world that precisely as a telos has no actuality yet. It is a goal, like in the future. Now, it seems that Husserl's telos cannot be justified based on any kind of evidence. And if we look into some of Husserl's later writings, we see he explicitly invokes practical rather than theoretical reason. He even invokes Kant's theory of postulates as containing a deep truth and providing a source of strength for his thought. And when talking about what he calls the sense of the world and the unitary and intelligible sense of history, he speaks, and I quote, of a faith, the content of which cannot be justified through theoretical knowledge, but which is justifiable from the motive of a possible practical life of reason. 
Now, if this stay loss cannot be justified phenomenologically, that means it has to be done speculatively and somehow backed up by an act of faith. And throughout the crisis and related writings, so let's say it's work from the 30s, but also like from the 20s already with the Kaizo articles and so on, Husserl makes use of a certain terminology of faith, which in light of the preceding might be more than mere rhetoric. So he speaks of the faith in reason through which the world has its meaning, the faith in the meaning of history, humanity, and so on. And interestingly, in one of the appendices to the crisis, he asks, what can bind us to our goal? It's a rhetorical question he asks. And he answers that it might only be, and I quote, the foolhardiness of striving toward a goal which is beautiful but only vaguely possible. And then he says, or he says about his goal that it's not definitely impossible, but in the end might be imaginary. But interestingly, he continues, what appears from the outside to be a failure might bring with it a certain evidence of practical possibility and necessity. So it seems that Husserl's use of faith isn't a sudden interruption of, let's say, irrationality in an otherwise completely rational project. It seems to be a practical necessity for the realization of this project. And indeed, is also if we look at uh, sort of similar accounts of Enlightenment philosophy, so not Husserl, but you know, uh, analyses of Kant and the French uh, philosophes, like by Carl uh, Jaspers, Carl Lewis, Vogelin, others, they also see that any account of progress, all these kinds of teleology, somehow involve an element <coughs> of faith. So again, Husserl is just exemplary of this. And it's also interesting that uh, now two of uh, Husserl's students or assistants uh, who would have known Husserl's work very well in the period that he was writing the crisis, Ludwig Landgrebe and Jan Patochka, uh, read Husserl's teleological account of history uh, not as a metaphysics of history, but precisely as this sort of practical insight. So to use the words of uh, Patochka in his review of the crisis, uh, he says that this teleology should be read as, and I quote, a contribution to human liberation, a summons in the garb of statements of fact. So the world isn't rational, we haven't reached the level of universal humanity, and there's no proper evidence that is even a possibility, let alone that will ever become a reality. Yet Husserl simply refuses the idea that the world is ultimately irrational, and there are actually several fragments uh, from this period where he explicitly articulates this refusal, where he simply refuses to believe that the world ultimately is irrational and not good and not beautiful and so on. And of course, it's precisely this refusal which is the motor for change in a world that doesn't live up to his ideals. So this, is, this idea definitely has a, a practical relevance. But nonetheless, it's a speculative idea. So despite its practical role, it's important to reflect on its functioning and status and to perhaps consider whether it might be fruitful to let go of what might be nothing but an unjustified assumption that enforces an ideal on reality that might fare better without it. Indeed, some post-Husserlian thought, and we've seen some examples of this uh, at this conference, has let go of this assumption in favor of a focus on plurality in various ways. But I think it's very important to be clear on what is let go of, on what grounds, and what consequences this has. Thank you very much.